The defense industrial base, it's pretty vast, but like the ice cap, it's steadily shrinking. The latest version of an annual report by the National Defense Industrial Association finds this. Even though thousands of new companies are getting DOD contracts each year, they're not enough to make up for the number of firms leaving the defense market. In fact, more than 17,000 companies left the defense industrial base in the past five years. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has more on the statistics and what companies say about their biggest challenges. NDIA's latest figures show the defense market lost a net 3,300 companies in 2021. Although more than 8,300 firms sold goods and services to DOD customers for the first time that year, even more companies left the defense space. The industrial base has been shrinking every year since 2017 from 76,700 companies in that year to just under 60,000 in 2021. David Norquist, NDIA's president, says the latest declines don't appear to be driven by industry consolidation, but by companies simply deciding not to do business with DOD. What you've seen mostly in the, in the more recent time is drop in firms willing to enter the defense industrial base or firms who are already here leaving, not necessarily primes, but others. If you're not buying as many helicopters, you won't have as many companies that make them because when one person loses, they can't sit out of the business for four years very, very easily. But for the smaller firms, the ones you're trying to grow to come in, what are the barriers that we are putting in their way and how do we try and remove those? Because part of the way the private sector grows competition is new firms keep entering and new disruptors keep showing up. And so one of the questions is, are we properly making it suitable for those firms to come in? There are certainly uh, mergers and acquisitions where somebody's trying to protect the loss of a supplier who might otherwise leave the industrial base or there's a technology they think they can uh, make more effective. But I would focus on why are people not staying and how do we draw people in because that's the best ways to sustain competition. Norquist testifying this week before a House Armed Services Committee hearing on the health of the industrial base. According to NDIA's survey of its members, 42% now say they're the government's only supplier for products they sell. And of the companies who are selling to DOD, 66% say dealing with the department is very difficult or somewhat difficult. For comparison's sake, only 9% of those same companies characterize their private sector customers that way. 30% of the respondents say their biggest challenge is the bureaucracy of the DOD acquisition process. Eric Fanning is the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association. We're poised for peace. Uh, Our sense of urgency, our processes, uh, how we invest, and we've got to move dramatically away from that to a sense of urgency. And the the FMS system is certainly a part of that. And it's only going to get worse. The weapon sales we talked about to Poland, um, when we transition from giving things to Ukraine to selling things from Ukraine, it's going to grind down to a very slow process when it goes to the foreign military sales system. So I think there are a number of things we have to do. We have to streamline the process. We have to change the presumption that's built into the process from the start to the finish. And it's really going to take um, a dedicated senior leader attention to make, through, to make sure this moves through the process. Another 22% of companies say the lack of stability in the federal budget is their biggest challenge. Fanning, a former Secretary of the Army, says the regularity of continuing resolutions in every appropriation cycle is a particular problem. Over the last 25 years, Congress has passed more than 120 continuing resolutions instead of on-time appropriations bills. In addition, we are still digging out from the effects of sequestration a decade ago. I saw some of these effects firsthand during my time at the Pentagon, but others have taken years to manifest and could take years to unwind without a sense of urgency. One result of these many years of successive decisions is an industrial base maximized to meet peacetime needs. This means excess capacity for surging is not always built into the system. We are optimized for efficiency. 
With the potential of conflict on the horizon, we must consider how we resource and support the capacity and resilience of the defense industrial base. Both Congress and DOD have a role to play. Sufficient funding comes first. This committee's leadership is evident in recent NDAAs. The growing bipartisan, bicameral support for increased funding in recent years has been an important signal to industry. But it's also critical that this funding is on time and predictable. Inflation is also a major issue for companies. 11% said it was their biggest single concern. And while it's a problem across the economy, it can be especially challenging in certain government contracts, like in the case of multi-year firm fixed-price contracts that companies agreed to before inflation became a major issue. Again, David Norquist. The the absence of those economic cost adjustments in existing contracts is a real challenge because often the government will award a five-year contract, and when there wasn't much inflation, the out years went up 2% a year. So small businesses I've talked to, their labor rates are now locked for four years, and they know that they can't keep those employees, you know, after we've had 9% inflation, at 2% raises going forward. So, you know, part of their challenge is in new contracts, they can get awarded at the new rate or new ones if the government includes economic cost adjustments. But those old ones really put them in a bind in their risk of losing their workforce. So that's one of the challenges, particularly small businesses are facing in this environment. And companies say broader workforce challenges are an even bigger issue than inflation. In NDIA's survey, 23% of companies said finding and retaining talent is their single biggest challenge. And industry representatives say many of the other problems companies face in the defense market also play into their workforce challenges. Uncertain budgets, for example, make it hard to know how many people they need to hire and train. Predictability is especially important in capital and labor-intensive portions of the defense sector, like in building and maintaining ships, says Matthew Paxton, the president of the Shipbuilders Council of America. Maintenance and modernization goes through a, a lot of ups and downs, you know, issuing warn acts and then they're letting folks go. When we try to get somebody in our trades, they go through their apprenticeship programs, they do all that great stuff, and they get certified and they're a welder or they're a machinist or electrician. Once you go through that apprenticeship program, you have kind of a, a sense of belonging. When we have to let these workforce go because workflows don't come into the home port like they were predicted, that tradesman was going to be a project manager. But it takes about five to eight years for that to happen, or a supervisor. And a lot of the guys in our shipyards are generational. They've had a mother or a father that's worked there, and they've won a career. So when we have instability in the work forecasts going into the home ports, the real disruption is with that workforce and then with the supply chains. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL 
was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and you know uh Terrell who who works in in our mailroom who comes by with packages and deliveries uh if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in but Terrell comes by always happy always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of I I you know so often when he'll walk away I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.